I think one of the greatest joys of being a parent or a grandparent is watching our kids and grandkids be amazed and delighted by things that we tend to take for granted. Um, As we grow up, our tendency, unfortunately, is to lose our sense of wonder at the, the miracles, really, that are happening all around us. Over time, we stop seeing how how amazing and how beautiful life really is, don't we? But children remind us. Uh, You know that I have a granddaughter, Madeline. She's 17 months old, and uh, my son Sean and his wife Kim took her to the zoo for the first time not not that long ago. And while she enjoyed so much watching the animals, Sean and Kim really enjoyed more watching Maddie watch the animals. And, um, and then when Robin and I got to go out and visit with them, we went to an aquarium together and just to watch her look at those fish and, and, and to kind of, in a sense, see them again for myself through her eyes and to see how beautiful, how stunning they really are. It was just, it was just so fun to watch that. And then on Christmas Day, we got a video uh, from them and we, what, we, what they took was uh, Maddie coming out of her bedroom and seeing what Santa brought her for the first time. And it was just priceless to watch that. So good, in fact, that I'm going to show it to you right now. that great? If you're wondering if I'm going to be showing you more home movies uh, as we go along, the answer is yes, absolutely. What can I say? I'm a grandpa. That's what you get. But it's too bad that we can't retain that sense of amazement that we had when we were children, isn't it? Um, For many of us, a life that began with curiosity and fascination has ever so slowly become humdrum. That's the way it was for Edward Hoagland for most of his adult life until his mid-50s when he began to lose his eyesight. Over time, his vision became so bad that he had to use a telescope to see what he used to be able to see with just eyeglasses. For almost three years, he was legally blind. And then, suddenly, through two different operations, his eyesight was restored. And the experience of seeing the beauty of life through new eyes made him feel, to use his words, giddy with delight. He wrote, for perhaps an entire year, I was incapable of being depressed. I simply needed to glance out the window. I couldn't believe how golden the sunshine was, how softly green each leaf, or how radiant the city night could be. Like a prisoner sprung from a dungeon, I didn't care about minor harassments, frictions, frettings, inconveniences. The sky, the clouds, the colors and movement, and my sudden freedom were plenty for me. Such a lovely, vivid, vibrant world. It was almost as if Edward Hoagland had been given the gift of being able, as an adult, to look at life with the eyes of a child. Last week, um, as we began our study of this 
New Testament book called Ephesians. We prayed together that what happened to Edward Hoagland physically might happen to us spiritually, that we might be given by the Spirit of God the eyes to see how wondrous and how beautiful life in Christ really is. Remember, we prayed for one another that that the same thing that Paul prayed for his readers twice in the book, first at the end of chapter 1 and then again at the end of chapter 3, and essentially what he asked God to do for them was to open their eyes to how deeply God loved them and how wealthy and how powerful they were because of their union with Jesus Christ. The fact is that God has lavished on us as Christians every possible spiritual blessing. We are more loved and more wealthy and more powerful than we can imagine. But too many of us simply don't see it. Whether it's because our eyes have never been opened to those truths before or because the stress and the disappointments and the distractions of life have slowly blinded us to those spiritual realities that once amazed and delighted us. We need to see what God has done for us with new eyes, with the eyes of a child, so to speak. That's why Paul prayed what he prayed in this book, and that is why he wrote what he wrote in the first paragraph of this letter. Paul's purpose in writing verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1 was to parade before our eyes, hopefully our newly enlightened eyes, a display of some of the most incredible treasures that are ours as Christians. Just follow along as I read verses 3 through 14 and try to absorb what what he's saying. Try to let these words penetrate your heart. Paul said, "'Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He, go back one, in love, He, there we go, in love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, 
to the praise of His glory. Man, that is a great passage. Let me just make a a few initial observations. First, this is clearly a text designed to help us worship God. You noticed that, didn't you? Four different times in these verses, Paul paused to praise God. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12, for the praise of His glory. And then verse 14, to the praise of His glory. See, Paul's primary purpose for unveiling to us all that is ours in Christ was for God to be appropriately appreciated for what He has done. Paul wanted us to know what God has given us so that we will worship Him from the bottom of our hearts. That was his goal. And secondly, I think it's important to point out that all the blessings listed in this passage are in the heavenly realms. Did you see that in verse 3? And I think that actually explains why we can so quickly forget or minimize God's blessings. It's because they're all up there, and we live down here. Planet Earth is not an ideal location from which to relish our heavenly treasures because, to use the words of Jesus, life's worries, riches, and pleasures get in the way. But it doesn't have to be that way. Over in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul is going to tell us that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. That's not a future tense statement, but a past tense statement. We're already there. And in Colossians 3, he says, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And that's hard to process. But we all know that this life is just a dot on the endless timeline of eternity. And to the extent that we succeed in focusing on the line rather than the dot, we will see this world with wide-eyed wonder. Paul had that eternal perspective. And that is why this passage oozes joy. He's like a little boy who is so excited that he hardly stops to take a breath. In fact, this whole paragraph over 200 words, is actually a single sentence in Greek. Paul's just gushing, praise God for everything that he's done for us. Well, there's this, and then there's this, praise God, and, and this, and then there's, there's this, praise Him. And oh yeah, don't forget this, praise Him. He, he's giddy with the light, despite the fact that he's under house arrest. He had a joy that transcended his circumstances. And that's exactly what will happen to us as God opens our eyes to our spiritual blessings. We're going to be joyful, thankful people, no matter how messy or how painful life gets. Now, let's hone in on the details. Let's look at these six incredible blessings that are yours right now if you are in Christ. That is, if you have put your faith in Jesus. The first thing that Paul says is true about you, if you're a Christian, is that you are perfectly pure in God's eyes. You are perfectly pure in God's eyes. Look again at verse 4. For He chose us 
in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Can I ask you, do you know yourself well enough to realize how incredible that is? Paul wrote in Romans 3 that there is no one, he's writing about you and me, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There's no one who does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God had a standard of goodness that was set by His own character. It's, it's His perfection. And all of us fall short of that. And you, you would agree with that, right? I mean, you, you, would, you would admit that you have sinned against God, that you are, you are a sinner, and I hope you know that we're all destined to die once and then to face judgment. And Jesus said that those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Does that not frighten you? If not, it's either because you don't really think that your sin is a big deal to God, wrong, or it's because you know that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. To use biblical imagery, you, ha you have washed the filthy rags of your unrighteousness in the blood that drained from the body of Jesus on the cross, and that blood, red as it is, has made you as white as snow. Praise God for His grace. And this is the real shocker. That grace was given to us before we were even born. I mean, God looked at the billions of people He would create. He looked all around. Are there any, is there anyone good down there? Nope. What am I going to do? And, and among all these not good, all of these unworthy people, He started handpicking some. He started handpicking you. You were among those. He handpicked you to be perfectly pure in His eyes. See, if you're a Christian, the reason why you believe in Jesus and have had your sins washed away by His blood is because God chose you before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. And you thought you chose Him. In John 15, Jesus said, no, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You might say, well, but I did choose to put my faith in Jesus. Yes, but according to Ephesians 2.8, even your faith is a gift that was graciously given to you by God. You chose Christ because God chose you to choose Christ. Not because there was some redeeming quality that made you attractive to Him, but just because it gave Him pleasure to give you grace. He granted you the character of Jesus, a lamb, without blemish or defect. Right now, as God looks at you, knowing everything about you, He sees no blemishes, no defects. You're holy. You're blameless. You're perfectly pure. Praise God for the fact that one day when we stand before His holiness, He's going to look at us and smile because of the way that we resemble Jesus. We need not fear the day of judgment because the outcome, in our case, is not in doubt. It never has been. 
And then without taking a breath, Paul moves on to blessing number two. He says that if you are in Christ, you are not only legally innocent before God, you are His adopted child. You're His adopted child. In love, Paul says in verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Now, that's not a sexist statement intended for men only. God's family is full of adopted sons and daughters. It, really, it's more of a legal statement. See, adoption as we know it did not exist at the time, but if someone was childless and they wanted to have control over who inherited their wealth, the law allowed them to adopt a young male and he would become the legal heir. So there's a legal element to what Paul is saying here. But there's also a relational element. He is saying, first, that we are co-heirs with Christ and that we are His brothers and sisters, that we are as deeply loved by God as Jesus is. Did you know that? Did you know that God loves you as much as He loves Jesus? Jesus Himself said that in John 17, 23. I heard about a new mother whose parents... Uh, stayed with her for a while after the birth of her first child. And one day, this new mom remarked to her mother that she was surprised that her baby had dark hair because both she and her husband were blondes. And her mom said, well, your, your dad has black hair. And the daughter replied, but mama, that doesn't matter because I'm adopted, remember? And the mother said, oh yeah, I always forget. It's a good picture of how God feels about us. We are His adopted children, but He loves us as much as He loves Jesus. Now, you may not have had an earthly father who loves you unconditionally. Maybe you've never known what it's like to have a dad who is crazy about you, no matter how well you perform. But Paul says, if you're in Christ, that's exactly the kind of heavenly father you have. The God of the universe is your dad. We, we cry out to him, Abba, Father, Abba, an Aramaic word that means basically daddy. He loves you with an everlasting and unquenchable love. In fact, he predestined you to be his child. Did you see that word there in love? He predestined us for adoption. I know that that's a word that rubs some of us the wrong way for all kinds of different reasons. Some of us think that predestination that idea that God chose us before we chose Him contradicts all those passages that clearly tell us that we can and we must put our faith in Jesus. The Scriptures are very clear that we have to make a choice. We have to decide to entrust ourselves to Him. And we just don't have enough room in our theological box for a mystery that affirms two different perspectives that we can't figure out how to reconcile. I used to have this little uh, puzzle made out of wood. It was a little pyramid, and there were two pieces. It was a two-piece two -piece puzzle, 3D. And you would be amazed at how hard it was to put that thing together. I mean, it, it, that was the whole point. I mean, there were just two pieces, but it, it took a long time to kind of like figure out, well, how, you know, how, do, how do these things fit together? And this is the way that it is with predestination and free will. There's, they're, they're, they're both... They're both true, they're both a part of the puzzle, 
But we have such a hard time fitting them together because our minds are so limited. And so some of us just say, well, since I don't understand it, I reject it. We shouldn't do that. It should cause us to worship God, not question Him. Well, there are others who think that any suggestion that we do not have free will makes us like marionettes. It's like God's up there and He has us on strings and we don't control our own destiny. We don't like that feeling. And if predestination is true, some of us can't help but ask, what kind of God would predestine some but not others? Well, Paul's answer to that question in verse 6 is, a God of amazing grace. See, he knows that left to ourselves, we're all doomed. If you just want want it to be by free will, good luck, because there's no one who does good. We've all chosen to do what's wrong. It's as if we've all jumped off the side of a ship of our own free will, and now we are drowning. But in His grace, God is flinging life preservers into the water at a furious pace. Is He to be resented for not saving everyone or thanked for saving so many who deserve to die? See, predestination is an act of grace in which God saves the drowning and acquits the guilty, and adopts the fatherless, which is why we should join Paul in praising God for His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. And then Paul adds to the pile a third blessing that all of us who are in Christ need to grasp. We have been set free from sin. We've been set free from sin. Do you see that in verse 7? In Him, in Christ, We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Again, just noticing that Paul is hung up on God's grace, on His undeserved kindness. He says that God has lavished His grace on us. The verb means to give more than is needed. It's like a smorgasbord of grace where all you can eat doesn't even make a dent. And because of that overabundance of grace, we have redemption and forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is a word that most of us understand. Really, he's just saying the same thing as he said in verse 4, only from a legal perspective. God the judge has cleared our record. It's a wonderful truth to know that God will not punish us, to know that we have been declared not guilty, even though we clearly are guilty, is a great blessing. But redemption, that's more than forgiveness. It's a word that means to be released from bondage through the payment of a ransom. See, in biblical times, slaves received their freedom through redemption. Someone would buy them out of slavery. They would pay a ransom to release them from bondage. And here Paul is saying that that's exactly what happened to us. We've been set free from slavery to sin. And the high price that was paid to free us, the ransom, was the blood of Christ. It was His death. Remember what Jesus said? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. In Acts 20, Paul told the elders of the church in Ephesus to be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Twice in 1 Corinthians, he said, you were bought at a price. 
In Revelation 5, those who are praising Jesus sing these words to Him. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nations. You see, the grace of God cost us nothing, but it cost Jesus everything. And that redemption that He purchased for us freed us from sin in every imaginable way. First, it freed us from the penalty of sin. I mean, that would be good enough. I was just reading in a, my, my uh, quiet time on Friday, Psalm 49. It was just the next one in a list of psalms that I've been reading, and I read these words, "'No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them.'" The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. Essentially, the psalmist was saying that no human being can pay a ransom of any amount to save another human being from death. But, the psalmist said, God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to Himself. God is the only one who can afford the ransom for our rescue from death, and He paid it, not with money, but with blood. But His blood didn't just free us from sin's penalty, it also freed us from sin's power. This is something that we, we so often forget. But according to 1 Peter 1 and Hebrews 9, the blood of Christ redeemed us from an empty way of life and made it possible for us to serve the living God. Titus 2 says that Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. Maybe you feel like you're enslaved to some sin. As hard as you've tried, you just cannot overcome it. You failed so many times that you, you think, well, I just have to wait until I go to heaven between now and then. I'm going to fail. I'm just going to keep on sinning in this area because I don't have the power to overcome it. Well, that's a lie. Whatever you've experienced doesn't matter. What God says is you do have the power to overcome it. I redeemed you from that sin. You can win this battle. I think that winning the battle begins with believing that you can win the battle, declaring that you can win the battle and then following through from there. And, you know, this is, this is another thing. We, we've been freed from the penalty of sin. We're, we're being freed from the power of sin. And one day, we're going to be freed from even the presence of sin. 1 John 3 says that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Can you imagine that? Actually being exactly like Jesus in your moral character. That's what's going to happen to you someday. And then the Son of Man is going to send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil, Matthew 13 says. And according to Revelation 21, nothing impure will ever enter the new Jerusalem in heaven. Sin will be extinct because of the ransom that God in His grace paid to set us free. Do you have eyes to see what a gift that is? But there's more. If you are in Christ, you also know where history is headed. Look at the sentence that begins in the middle of verse 8. This is talking about world history, what's going to happen. Verse 8, with all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us 
the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. So He's saying, here's how it's all going to finish. This is where it's all leading to, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Did you know that God has a plan for world peace? We all want that. Everybody wants that. Some think that the only way it's going to happen is if everybody just becomes a lot more tolerant. Tolerant of other cultures, other religions, other belief systems. We need to live and let live. We will achieve peace through diversity. Well, how's that working for us? Back in 1956, William Barclay, in his commentary on Ephesians, wrote, Without Christ, there is nothing but disunity and disharmony. Man is divided from man, class from class, nation from nation, ideology from ideology, Gentile from Jew. And what is true of the world is true of human nature. Every man is a walking civil war torn between the desire for good and the desire for evil. He hates his sins and loves them at the same time. This disharmony extends even to the heavenly places. A cosmic battle is raging between the powers of evil and the powers of good, between God and the demons. Worst of all, there's a disharmony between God and man. Man who was meant to be in fellowship with God is estranged from him. Well, have, have things changed since 1956? Is that not still true? What the world can't see is that God still wants world peace, only His strategy is different. His plan is to unite all of the diverse peoples of the world by giving them one thing in common that outweighs all of their differences. And that one thing is submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Sometimes in marriage counseling, um, uh, I'll say to a struggling couple that there's only one way to, for them to come closer together. I'll draw a triangle, actually, and I'll say, each of you is at one corner on the bottom, and you are having the hardest time trying to connect with one another. You're just hitting roadblock after roadblock. But if both of you move toward Jesus, who's at the top of the triangle, if both of you grow in your relationship with Him, then you will naturally find yourselves closer to one another. And that's true, but it's just one example. Paul's going to say the same thing about Jews and Gentiles. I keep saying the same thing about Republicans and Democrats. We could say it about white churches and black churches, about Russians and Ukrainians, about Catholics and Protestants, about triple boosters and anti-vaxxers. The world will become unified when what we have in common is greater than whatever else might divide us. And it's a shame. We should be ashamed as Christians that that is not yet true in the church. That we actually have ideologies that divide us when we have Jesus in common. God have mercy on us for that. And this is actually going to happen. This isn't just a hope for God. Philippians 2 says that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't you look forward to that day? See, the world doesn't have a clue that unity is going to happen in that way, but if you're in Christ, you know where history is headed. And fifth, if you're in Christ, you will inherit eternal riches. That's what Paul says 
in verse 11. You will inherit eternal riches. We read it in the NIV, and it says that in Christ we were also chosen, but a footnote at the bottom of that page will say in, that it could also be translated, in Him we were made heirs, H-E-I-R-S. We were made heirs. The English Standard Version says we've obtained an inheritance. God has more wealth than we can imagine. But guess who's going to inherit it? We are. Romans 8 says that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So think about this. What Jesus possesses in heaven right now, we will possess one day. 1 Peter 1 says that what's waiting for us there can never perish or spoil or fade. In the words of the great theologian Oprah Winfrey, the future is so bright it burns my eyes. The most joyful people I know are those who know the most about what awaits them in heaven. Do you realize that it's possible to know a lot more about what your life is going to be like after death than you know right now? And I'm not just talking about speculation. I'm talking about what's actually in Scripture. We have this tendency to think, well, look, I know it's going to be good, better than I can imagine, but I don't need specifics. I've got too many other things to think about. Well, okay, but... How's that working for you in terms of your, your mood? Do you, are you filled with joy like, like Paul was? Are you filled with joy like those that you know who are looking forward to heaven? I love Psalm 84, 5, which says, Blessed are those who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Blessed are those who know that this world is not their home, that they're on their way to something so much better. And the more that we maintain that perspective, the more that we look forward to what awaits us there, the more joy we will have here. But Paul squeezes in one more blessing before he stops to catch his breath. And it speaks to those of us who find it hard to rejoice in all these blessings because we have a haunting fear that somewhere along the way we might disqualify ourselves and lose our salvation. If you are terrified by that thought, look very carefully at what Paul says in verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit. What's the next word? Guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. If you are in Christ, Paul says, you are secure in your salvation. At the moment that you heard the gospel, the truth that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you believed in Him, God put His seal of ownership on you like a rancher who burns a brand into the hide of his cattle. God put an indelible mark of ownership on you. The presence of His Spirit in your life is proof that you are in Christ and that no one can take you from Christ. And He's not only a seal of ownership, He's also a deposit, a, a down payment guaranteeing what is to come. The, the Spirit of God is a foretaste of heaven, a constant reminder that God fully intends to give us everything He has promised to give us. There's a different uh, imagery in, John chap in, in the Gospel of John chapter 10 where Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. 
And then he said, my father, who's greater than all, no one can snatch you out of his hand either. And then he said, I and the father are one. So there it is, the, the power of God surrounding you. You're inside, you can't fight your way out. Nobody from the outside can reach in and take you out. You're there to stay. Your future is secure. And that word redemption that Paul uses in, in verse 14, it may refer to the day when we take possession of all that belongs to us, but I think it's more likely that Paul was talking about the day when God takes possession of what belongs to him. And what belongs to him? We do. He bought us with the blood of Jesus, and he has no intention of ever letting go of that which he paid so much for. I'll tell you, when your eyes have been opened to the spiritual blessings that are yours in Christ, you cannot help but praise God like Paul did. There's a sad footnote to the story of Edward Hoagland's restored eyesight. It didn't last. Ever so slowly, his world went dark again. Seventeen years after he wrote about how he saw the world with new eyes, he wrote these words, blindness is enveloping. It's beyond belief to step outside and see so little, just a milky haze. Indoors, a smothering dark. Like a prisoner, I am hooded, disabled. That dry term once applied to so many others over my lifetime now applies to me. As best I can, I'll make peace with it. I just want to say, don't make peace with spiritual blindness. Ask God to give you eyes to see all that is yours in Christ. And don't stop asking until what you see is not a milky haze, but a lovely, vivid, vibrant world. And if you're not yet in Christ, if you've never before made that decisive commitment to believe in and follow Jesus, you can do it right now. And, and at the moment that you do it, this is what God will do for you. He will make you perfectly pure in His eyes. He'll adopt you as His child. He will free you from slavery to the things that have destroyed you. He will help you to understand where history is headed. He will make you an heir of eternal riches, and He will make you secure in your salvation. And the best news of all is that all of these things won't cost you anything. They're free to you because of the price that Jesus paid. May God give you the grace to believe in Him. Let's bow in prayer. And can you just um, thank God for whatever it is that you've heard about this morning that spoke to your heart? And as each of us is doing that individually, if, you, if you're a person who's never before said, thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins on the cross, just tell Him that right now. Invite Him to come into your life to cleanse you and to give you a fresh start in life. Oh, Lord, um, whatever, whatever we do grasp about our blessings are such a small fraction of what's really true. We, we realize that by looking at this passage, and we ask you to do what only you can do, which is to give us the spiritual insight to really understand these things. Because 
We want to live with that, um, that joy that transcends circumstances. And we know that that means we have to set our minds on things above, but we need your help to do that. So we pray that, that this day and this week, you will help us to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. In Jesus' name, amen.